1972, I was in my second year of seminary, and I got a letter at my uh, seminary post box. Uh, I noticed that the address was written in pencil, as was the return address. And I looked at the return address to see who this might be from, and I didn't recognize the name, but the address was Bayonne, New Jersey. I think that's where Frank Sinatra grew up, wasn't it? Bayonne? Or Hoboken? Hoboken, okay, next door. Tough town, tough town. And I hadn't, I'd only ever met one person from Bayonne, New Jersey, a guy named George Poulsen. I was interested to see who this might be from. So I opened the letter, and interestingly, it said, uh, hello, Mr. Buzzle, my name is, he told me his name, and I don't remember the name, but he said, George Poulsen is my youth pastor. And he suggested that I write to you to thank you because I thanked him for teaching me how to read the Bible and how to pray. And he said, you really ought to write to this guy who taught me how to read the Bible and to pray and thank him. Well, I had known George. I met George 12 years earlier. I was a lifeguard at a summer camp where I lived with the caretaker. And, and uh, this board member of this great camping organization had heard about this kid in Bayonne, New Jersey. Tough street kid. Nasty kid. And he had accepted Jesus as his savior. And, and so this board member said, this kid needs help. We've got to get him out of his gang. We've got to get him out of his, his mother's house. We've got to get him some help. So could you guys give him a job up there? So my guardian, Chris, who I lived with at the camp, uh, gave him a job working in the kitchen, the pot washer. And, and he, then Chris said to me, would you mind moving into the staff dorm and rooming with this kid? Because he is like you were last year. And, and uh, we think of all the guys who could help him, maybe you. So I moved in with George. First night, I said, George says, I've got my Bible out. I always read my Bible and had prayer. Chris taught me to do that every night. And so George says, what the hmm are you doing? And I said, I'm reading my Bible. What the hmm are you doing that for? And I said, well, there's good stuff in here. Some Jesus stuff about how to live life. And I'm learning how I can be a better person. And he says, you want to read with me? No, I don't want to read that stuff. So didn't work. Well, a couple nights later, you know, I kept reading and I kept inviting George. So he decided he would read the Bible with me. And he would pray with me. And so George began getting into it. I remember the first night I said, George, why don't you pray tonight? He said, I don't know how to pray. I said, well, I, you've heard me pray. It's just like writing a letter. Just try it. So he says, all right. Just real quiet for a few. I've got my head bowed. Keep peeking to see if he's. Dear God, this is George. I'm fine. How are you? <laughs> He's writing God a letter. He says to me, now what do I say? Is there, what, what do you, do you any problem? Anything you want to talk to God about? He says, yeah. God, them creeps in the kitchen. Get them off my back before I have to do it. Amen. <laughs> it's a start. Well, now, tw it's, uh, summer ended. By the end of the summer, George and I were having devotions every night. We're praying together, reading together. George went home, back to Bayonne, and, and I continued my senior year in high school. Never heard from George again. I had no idea what happened to him. Twelve years later, 
George is a youth pastor in Bayonne, New Jersey. All right? Now, that's what this parable we're talking about this morning is about. It's the parable of the seed and the soils. Jesus said to his followers, uh, I want to tell you a parable because what you're, you're conf- you may be confused. You're seeing all these different responses to me. You're seeing people love me. You're seeing people follow my teaching. You're seeing people ridiculing me. You're seeing these people who want to kill me now. So it's the same word. It's the same teaching that I give. But you're seeing some people get furious about it, and some people change their life over it. So what's going on? How come all these different responses to Jesus' message? So he said, you know, the, 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 the sower went out to sow his seed in his garden. As he threw the seed out, some fell on the road, on the hard-packed road. And the birds came and devoured it. It didn't have any impact at all. Some other seed fell in rocky soil. And those seeds grew up, but they didn't have any root. So as soon as the sun came up, they just wilted and died and, and no fruit from those plants. Other seed fell among the weeds. And, and it took root and it grew up, the this, this seeds, and they started getting healthy. But the weeds grew up with it. And eventually choked it out, and there was no fruit. And he said, and the fourth seed fell on good ground. And those plants grew up and produced fruit a hundredfold. Nice story. Well, after the crowd left, the disciples came to Jesus and said, hey, what's with the stories? This was Jesus' first parable. What's with the stories? And and Jesus said, it's a new way I'm teaching so that you guys get it and and, and these memorable parables that I'm going to use. They said, well, what does it mean? What is is the seed? What's that about? Jesus said, the seed, and here is the key statement in this parable. As he was explaining the parable to his disciples, he said, the seed is the word of God. The seed is Torah. Torah. The seed is God's instructions about how we should live our life. That's the seed. I am the sower, and I'm sowing the seeds. And some of those seeds are going to fall on pavement, like throwing seeds on our parking lot out there. Nothing's going to happen. In other seeds, people hear it, they respond to it, sort of. By the time they... Or at lunch, it's gone. It's like here. We get all shined up on Sunday morning, good Presbyterians. We come here and we read our Bibles and make, yeah, that's good stuff. But by the time lunch is over, it's gone. Uh, Maybe that's just me. I don't know. Other people say, you know, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that. And they do for a while. And then the cares, Jesus said the cares. Well, let me just read it to you. Why am I talking about it? This is the meaning of the parable. The seed is God's word. Those along the path are the ones who hear. And then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so they may not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky ground are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing they fall away. The seed that fell among the thorns stands for those who hear But as they go on their way, they're choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. But the seed on the good soil stands for those, listen to this, stands for those with a noble and good heart. They hear it. They retain it. 
and by persevering, they produce a crop. Now, obviously, Jesus was teaching about this fourth kind of soil, this fourth kind of a good and noble heart. Now, I believe this parable represents four different kinds of people. Actually, no, it doesn't represent four different kinds of people. It's a story. And Jesus made these four discrete kinds of decisions. But we all know that there are hundreds of different kinds of decisions. So don't lock Jesus into these four little pigeonholes, these four little categories. He's using them to illustrate that there is a spectrum of responses. And like most pigeonholes, these leak. Okay, so he's talking about there are many different kinds of ways that different people respond to God. And we know that. We've seen that. We've talked to people about the Bible. Some people just not interested. Some people hear it and they grow. But as I was thinking about this, I think it's also, in addition to being the response of different hearts, it's the response of every heart. It's how I respond to God's truth. Sometimes I hear a truth and I say, oh, yeah, that's good, that's interesting. I forget that it's the Ten Commandments, not the Ten Suggestions. And I say, well, I can take that or leave it. Other truths, I hear it again. The second time I hear it, I think, you know, I kind of ignored that the first time, but probably something I should think about, and I commit to do it, and I do it for a while, and then I stop, then I hear it again, and this time I think, you know, that's something I really have to do, so I start again, and then over time I get busy, other priorities sneak in, and it just sort of falls away. And then God, in his grace, says, hey, dummy, <laughs> I'm going to tell you again. I read it in the scripture, I hear a sermon, or somebody's talking to me. And finally, it catches. And what we discover is life isn't about a lot of changes. Life is about growth. And Jesus said, as you think about this parable in those terms of, of you hear it, it doesn't even affect you, you hear it, you do it for a while, and you stop, you do it, you have a little more commitment, and it takes time. These things have to grow into our heart, into our heart. And the whole point Jesus is making is that it's the good and noble heart that produces the fruit that the seeds of God's Word are supposed to produce. As my life responds to God's word over time, over time, I see God beginning to develop, to mature, to shape, to sharpen, and I see my life changing as I respond to God's word. And, and, and so, yes, it does have these different ways that different people respond to it. But don't miss that this parable is talking about your heart. It's talking about my heart. Talking about how over time, God in his beautiful grace turns us from hard soil in relation to a specific truth 
that he wants us to learn and understand. And over time, he, he breaks up the ground. He picks out the rocks. He pulls out the weeds. And suddenly that truth is beginning to change life. Beginning to change life. And we find in relation to that truth, I have a good and noble heart. And then God hits me upside the head with another one. I got to start all over again. The life is this constant process of God breaking up the ground as I hear another truth. Pulling the rocks out of my life and picking the weeds out of my life and enriching my heart in relation to that truth. And it's just on, going on and on, going on and on. That's what you were singing about in that last song, wasn't it, Frank? I listened, listened to that thing. God comes back and I hear him again and he hears me again as I pour out my heart and say, oh God, I want to do that. I'm just not strong enough to do it. And he says, you know, I'll help you. I'll help you on that. And, and we grow. So, so the, the thing is, how do we develop? How do we cultivate this rich and noble heart? Well, first point is we've got to choose to do it. It's a choice. Lord, I want to grow. I want to learn. I want to respond to this truth. I want to be the person you have created me to be, recreated me to be. Will you put the Holy Spirit into my life? Help me. I want this more than anything else. It's like what Paul said. This one thing I do. Forgetting what's behind. I press forward toward the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul was a monomaniac with a mission. He said, I, nothing matters to me as much as being the person God created me to be. Is there a higher calling in life? Does your golf score trump that one? A lot of people say, yeah, it really does. Yeah. Yeah, I fit my Christian life around other things. Jesus said, no. You fit other things around this. Nothing matters as much as my process of enriching your heart so that you can respond properly to my word. Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. Another monomaniac with a mission. He said, You're gonna, they're going to kill you up there. Don't you know? He says, that's my mission. I'm going to Jerusalem and ain't nothing going to stop me. That's the kind of choice. Make. Kipling said, if a man doesn't get what he wants in life, it's a sign either that he didn't want it badly enough or that he tried to bargain over the price. <coughs> Choose it. The first step and cultivating a good and noble heart is choosing unequivocally this one thing I do. And everything in my life has to fit into that commitment. That commitment doesn't fit into everything else in my life, which 
is more important. Nothing is more important than this. So the first step is to, to decide, to choose to do it. Secondly, we have to cultivate our heart. After we choose to do it, we say, okay, now I've got to go to work on this. I've got to pick out the rocks. I've got to pull the weeds. I've got to soften up the ground. I've got to be open to God. And there are a couple of things. The Bible is full of stuff about, about the heart. And the first thing we do with cultivating it is what Proverbs and I preached on this a while back. Above all else, guard your heart. Guard your heart. Watch over it. Take time for it. Protect it. Protect it. Jeremiah 17 says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And, 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 and the first thing is keeping the contamination out of the heart. Confessing our sin. We're going to fail. Or at least I do. I, I don't know if you do. I do. And I have to confess. I was in, in uh, Nigeria and talking about this, and in the village where I was, they had just dug a well. And that's why we were there at World Vision, to help celebrate this well. It was a great celebration. It changes life, a well in the village. And so that night as I was talking to them, I said, what would happen if an elephant fell in your well and died, and you had a rotting carcass of an elephant in your well? I said, whew, couldn't drink that water. Did how many of us have a rotting elephant in our well. Anger, bitterness, unforgiven offenses just drives our life. Colors everything we look at. Purify it. Confess it. Deal with it. Get the dead elephant out of your well. Or ain't nothing going to work. So I cultivate it. I guard my heart, first of all, by protecting it, by cleansing it, by keeping it away from stuff that's, that's going to lead me astray. It's going to put thoughts and ideas in there that I don't need in there. I start reading that stuff. I start looking at that stuff. I start thinking about that stuff. I say, stop. Stop. Eating garbage, letting that stuff come into my heart. Keep it out. And when it gets in, confess it and get it out. So that's the first thing. The second thing is to feed it, to feed it, to cultivate it, to, to give it good stuff. Now, I, I mentioned this guy, Chris, who hired George. He was the, uh, the uh, operations manager at this Bible conference. And another thing Chris did is gardening. Uh, the, our play, Word of Life, in the Adirondacks, it was called the Garden Center of the Adirondacks. And people, take a Sunday drive, let's go over to Word of Life and see the gardens. And he had the most gorgeous flowers. And people are always saying, hey, I'm a gardener, but I can't, I don't grow flowers like this. What's your secret? Well, Chris's secret was his cement mixer. And in spring, he, outside the, he had a greenhouse over there, and we would start working on soil. And so he'd say, okay, this is for the begonias, this is for the petunias, this is for the fibrous begonias, this is for the tuberous begonia. But he was down that careful. And so we'd be mixing soil for each of these kinds of plants. So he'd get bone meal, and we'd get uh, uh, peat moss, and we'd get different, he even had different kinds of manures. And, and so we'd mix in the cement mixer, and they, this mix, this soil, 
would go in all of the big baskets where we would have petunias. And then we'd make another mix. And this would be for the geraniums. And this would be for the impatiens. He grew beautiful flowers because he made beautiful soil. Good and noble soil. And God says, got a cement mixer for you. Because you're different than anyone else. Some of us are more different than others, but we're all different. And each of us responds differently to different truths. Some things, uh, I don't want to do that. God says, trust me. I'm going to throw the right stuff in your cement mixer to help you grow this plant so that it will change your life. When I was 15, Chris taught me to pray, and he taught me to give. First time he talked to me about tithing. And I'm making room and board and five bucks a week up there living with Chris. And I said, tithing? What's it? 10% you give to God. 50 cents a week out of my $5? I ain't going to do that. End of discussion. Well, Chris came back a couple of weeks later. You thought more about this giving thing, this tithing thing? Nope. said, you need to. You need to. So anyway, long story short, I started tithing, 50 cents a week. I'd give it to Chris. He would put it in his thing and send it off to Leon Dillinger, the missionary that we were supporting. Great stuff. Well, then I left Chris, went to college, working my way through college. Money is tight. Stop giving. Can't afford that. Then I heard a chapel message. He was talking about generous grace giving, not tithing, but above the tithe, generous giving, and the beauty of that. So I did it again for a while. I did probably a couple years. I got caught up with another missionary and was sending money, a little, you know, again, not much, but just some. And then uh, there was this big retreat coming up. It was going to be expensive, and I couldn't afford both, so I stopped giving. Went away again. Kind of like that soil, you know, the weeds grew up, and I didn't do it. And then my junior year in college, Jeanette and I decided we were going to get married after my junior year in college. So we sat down together and looked at our budget. <laughs> What's it going to cost us? So, okay, let's look at fixed expenses. We've got rent. We've got your car payment. Insurance. Tuition. Those are fixed expenses. Now let's look at variable expenses. Jeanette said, you left something off. She said, what? She said, giving. I said, that's not a fixed expense. She says, if you're going to marry me, it is. Oh, I would drink poison to marry her. So yeah, okay, I'll deal with that later. I didn't know that dealing with that later when you're dealing with Jeanette, you don't deal with that later. You know, deal with it now. Anyway, so we did that. It was one of our fixed expenses. And she was real happy, and I went along with it. <laughs> Second year of seminary, our boys came home from school one day. They were four and five years old. They were in a preschool like ours over here. And so every night, we would, after dinner, we'd talk, read Bible story, and pray. And so what do you, what do you guys want to pray about tonight? John said, I have these friends, these two brothers. 
that I go to school with. I don't remember their names. So I'm going to call them Flap and Ding. But so you refuse, excuse me, boys. I know you're somewhere. But their dad was a classmate of mine. They were from India. And we thought we were poor, but they were poor. And what John said is, I asked, I asked Flap today. What is, you get it. I asked Flap today, how come you guys wear street, street shoes to school? Because we, you know, we have gym, we do this stuff. Because our boys had street shoes that they wore to church, and they had sports shoes that they wore to school. And it didn't make sense to them that these guys were wearing their street shoes to school. I'll see if I can get that straight. And, and they said, well, we don't have any other shoes. These are the only shoes we have. And John was really concerned about that. He said, could we pray that Flap and Ding can get sports shoes? Said, yeah, let's do that. So we prayed a couple nights, and then Janet came up with this ingenious idea. Maybe we could buy them shoes. I said, will you shut up? <laughs> yeah. So we started praying that maybe God would allow us to do that. And then again, a few days later, Jeanette came back and said, hey, boys, didn't check with me on this. Hey, boys, you know, your dad and I put a little money away every month for Christmas so that when Christmas comes, we can have money to buy Christmas presents. What would you guys think if instead of us using all that money for us for Christmas this year, we bought Flap and Ding some shoes? Oh, wow, yeah. You sure? Yeah. Okay, God answered our prayer. We're going to get flap and ding some shoes. We went down to the bank, got some cash, put an envelope. I put his dad's name on it, stuck it in the campus mail. About three days later, boys came home. Said, you ain't going to believe this. What? Flap and ding have sports shoes. God, and they're talking to tell everybody, God bought them sports shoes. And they didn't tell him it was us. That would have spoiled it. I just sat there watching my kids be so thrilled that they could take some of their Christmas money and give up some of their Christmas presents so Flap and Ding could have shoes. And that truth about tithing and generous grace giving that Chris introduced me to 12 years ago 12 years later, it stuck. It took God 12 years to break up this hard ground, this selfish, self-centered ground, and pull out the rocks, and pick out the weeds, so that that night I sat there weeping thanking God that my little boys were thrilled about giving. Well, the old man is over there thinking, we shouldn't be doing this. But God has a process. It's called growth. It's called transformation. Paul said, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Be transformed. By renewing the way you think about God's word, breaking up the ground, picking the rocks, pulling the weeds.